0: Hello, I'm Alice Driver and welcome to the Resilience Sessions, brought to you by Blesma The Limbless Veterans Charity, supported by Openreach and produced by The Drive Project. These are open and inspiring conversations where we meet ordinary people with extraordinary experiences. Veterans who have suffered life-changing injuries as well as figures from public life. In this episode, we hear from TV and radio presenter Vic Cope and veteran Sean Stocker, speaking about how life-changing experiences at the age of 19 defined their paths in life. Sean talks about dealing with his injuries, and Vic discusses growing up in Newcastle as mixed race, being different, and experiencing racism through school. And they both talk about depression and grief and the benefits that counselling brings how are you both today
1: very well i'm yeah. good i'm yeah. looking forward to this brilliant it's be
0: fun. good yeah. well thank you for coming Thanks for um so let's get started so i thought it'd be a nice place to start if you both introduced each other so vic would you go
2: first please thank you age 16 sean joined the first battalion royal welsh fusiliers as an infantry soldier in the british army three years later age 19 His life changed forever. Just six days from ending a tour of Afghanistan, Sean stepped on an IED. He lost both his legs above the knee, his left eye, the vision in his right eye and suffered various other injuries. After spending two months in an induced coma and having over 40 operations, Sean started his journey of rehabilitation at Headley Court. Here, Sean began learning to walk on prosthetics and had an operation which gave him back 30% vision in his right eye. Sean now runs a successful property business, but his passion is charity work. He works with and raises money for multiple charities and is an accomplished inspirational speaker for secondary school students. Alongside this, Sean is working on a project with HMP Berwyn putting together a programme to assist with the rehabilitation of the men in the veterans wing of the prison. Sean's input here has been so valuable that a wing of the prison has been named after him. Sean's dedication to helping others led to him being part of the Queen's 2019 New Year's Honour List, receiving a British Empire Medal.
0: Thank you so much. Um, And now, Sean, uh, are you ready to introduce Vic Um, to us, please?
1: So this is Vic Hope, a Nigerian Geordie with a Cambridge degree. Vic is a multilingual and multi-skilled and multifaceted individual, making waves in the world of broadcast. At the age of 19, Vic spent a year living in Buenos Aires as she joined the Argentina Independent as the youngest ever journalist. It was here where she was snapped up by MTV, beginning her career on entertainment shows on their international channels. Vic can now be found presenting a host of different shows on television and radio, including London's biggest breakfast show, Capital FM, with Roman Kemp every morning. She was a contestant on last year's Strictly Come Dancing, and this year, she hosted the popular reality TV show, Chipwrecked, on E4. Alongside all her media work, Vic is a tireless human rights activist and campaigner. Last year, Vic emceed at the Women's March, an event that she described as one of her proudest moments. She is also an Amnesty International Ambassador for their Women Breaking Barriers campaign and volunteers at a weekly refugee project working with children from asylum-seeking families.
0: Thank you very much. So, Vic, yeah. um, to begin with, your mother was a refugee from yeah. the Biafra War and she came over to the UK and eventually grew up and married your father, who My was a dad. Geordie. Uh, yeah. He is. So what was that like growing up in Newcastle in the 80s and
2: 90s? Um it it was great I love Newcastle I don't have a Geordie accent I'm sad about that no you know? I, I yeah it's it's a real shame because I think it's a great accent why I and, <laughs> why, why I, why I but the thing is I think because my because mum came over when she was about 11 from Nigeria she didn't speak any English and she was so keen to I guess the word and we don't really use it so much anymore is assimilate she wanted to you know be accepted and she learned English by watching like the BBC by watching like the news so she speaks like the queen oh. Um it's really funny because often she'll say things she doesn't fully understand them but she says it cause she knows it's like the proper thing to say so she kind of taught me and my brothers to speak like that as well but she came over the war had just finished so she grew up during the war and came over as a as an immigrant and she's told me a lot of stories about how it was when she arrived. When they first arrived, they got the, they were there um, in a little like one bed flat in Newcastle. I don't know why Newcastle at the time. Actually, I really feel like they maybe thought it was London. I'm not sure. But uh, on the street that they moved into, there was a petition that went round um, to get the darkies out. And I think you know Newcastle then was very different from what I experienced growing up. Thankfully, you know, thankfully things have moved forwards. But for that, my mum has... Being very protective, and she, she she's brilliant. She's a very strong, very strong woman. Um, and she met my dad because he went to a school next to her, and her best friend at school was going out with his best friend at school. They were two years apart, sixteen and eighteen, and they've been together ever since. Oh wow! I know okay. it's a long time, isn't it? It's amazing. They say that they first kissed on the big wheel at the Hoppings, which is this like fairground that comes to Newcastle each year. Um, I don't know if I believe them and maybe it was something more dirty that they're not telling me, but yeah. <laughs> I don't want to know. Yeah, I will take that. But so they it's have an anniversary <laughs> every
1: time year it comes round. They love it.
2: the Hoffings. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I grew up in, in Newcastle in a place called Heaton. I went to school there. I got a scholarship to go to a pretty good school. So me and one of my brothers got a scholarship there. maybe the two brothers unfortunately didn't. So they went to a more local one. And I also, I don't know, I was quite a... Two good kids, probably a bit precocious and annoying, to be honest. I did extra classes. I went to the local comp, the um, adult education classes there to learn Spanish because I really wanted to do languages. I got—I was one of these kids that gets an idea in their heads, and I was like, "I've got to do that. I've, I really, really want to learn this language." My school didn't teach it, so I taught myself. How old were you when you did? That? Uh, sixteen. And so yeah, I, I didn't do a GCSE in it or anything, but I taught myself so I could do an A level, and then. Um, got my A-level so I could go to Cambridge because I was absolutely adamant because my teacher, I, so where I'm from there wasn't that many people going to places like Cambridge. I heard about it and I was like I've got to go there because everyone seems to think that you can't get in and it felt like a challenge. So I knew I needed an A-level in Spanish if I wanted to do languages which seemed to me like a nice idea. So I made it my mission to go there and I, I've had a lot of teachers going. You don't want to waste one of your options on that. You're not going to get in. Don't be silly. You'll be disappointed. They were doing it to try and protect to me. And mm. to be fair, even my mum and dad were like, "It's not something that was ever a part of their world either." In in some ways, they kind of didn't even like the idea of it because they thought it would be this, be this really, really like elite place that I wouldn't fit in and I'd be sad. And they would sort of even discouraged a little bit. And and was it? What was it like when you... And you obviously got there, yeah. which is amazing, read modern yeah. languages. I did languages of French, Spanish, and a bit Portuguese. Wow,
0: um, sir. <laughs> I can speak Pigeon yeah. French. <laughs> and I'm did quite you, proud of that.
2: But. Did, cool. did you not
1: get your words mixed up in different classes?
2: Um, a little bit. But I think <laughs> the thing is, they kind of complement each other quite well because they're quite similar languages. So if anything, it helped me to understand. It helped me to understand English, I would say. And I knew I needed something as well to set me apart from these people going to... Eaten and stuff so I decided to do further maths A level again my school didn't do it so I had to like teach myself <laughs> I've looked back and think wow I wish I still had that motivation that I had when I was 17 I was That's well amazing. on it but and what yeah. was it like when you got to Cambridge? So Cambridge,
0: Cambridge is presumably was there anyone from your school going or did you know uh, anyone?
2: There was a couple of other people it was what I sort of expected. Yeah, growing up in Newcastle, there was like Newcastle's a great place, but when I was growing up, there wasn't a huge amount of diversity there. So it wasn't like I I wasn't used to not seeing other people who looked like me. Cambridge was next level of this. There's a lot of people who are from very privileged backgrounds, and um, because the schools that they go to, they train them up. So I remember talking once to a director of studies and saying, I wish there was more. You know, you need more diversity here. We need to be working on getting more people from d- different um, backgrounds, whether it's because of their class or their race. For whatever reason, this is very one-sided right now. And he went, I know, but we can't deny. The, the, people get in on how good they are, how, how intelligent they are, how academic they are. We can't deny that if you're coming in from Eton, we can't fault you on your knowledge because you've been well-trained in how to pass these exams and how to conduct yourself well in these interviews. And you're confident in a way that a lot of us are not necessarily bred to be I wasn't really bred to think that I could talk on a level with someone who is a professor and the best in in the world in their discipline. I'd feel intimidated, but a lot of these kids weren't intimidated by that. And that is a huge thing at that age. And it's a huge thing that differentiates people who who haven't and, and who aren't necessarily going to go down that path. So I was intimidated when I first got there. But clearly you had something within you that was just naturally, you
0: were a naturally confident person. And for for a 16 year old to basically get the head down, go to
2: night school and get
0: yourself into Cambridge, Mm. that's pretty impressive.
2: Uh, Yeah, I guess I think I didn't think of it like that. Because as I say, I think I really saw it as a challenge because, because people had told me that it wouldn't happen you couldn't do it I think I okay. really think that's it I think if, if people hadn't said that I don't think I would have tried mm. and that's always been something that's motivated me throughout life is when it seems like there's a block there's an obstacle there's something that says no I, I, I really really want it to be a yes okay. <laughs> I feel like I found my tribe a little bit Cambridge because although there were all these people who had a completely different background there were these amazing people I met who had worked as hard if not harder than me so when they got to Cambridge they didn't struggle they they were used to grafting that hard and and it is a rigorously academic environment and so to be able to thrive you have to put the work in and they knew how to do that they absolutely knew how and I had this great group of friends from all over the world from all different backgrounds all different cultures all different types of schools yeah you do feel a little bit intimidated by I guess the type of people who were there, but I, it's all it's something I, I was used to. As I say, when I was growing up in Newcastle, I was the only girl in my school who was I mean, there. Were some there were some Chinese, Indian, and Pakistani kids, but there was no black kids and no mixed race kids. There was no one who looked like me, so I was very used to this mm. feeling like quite different from everyone else, or not being sure whether I fitted in, or and I felt that throughout uni. I was always like, do. You know, am I supposed to be here?
1: Do you think do you think that helped you? Helped you become the person that you are?
2: Yeah. I think as it's been the source of the majority of the discomfort, existential crises, a lot of pain, but it's also been, as you say, something that's helped. I think it's it's kind of helped me mould a sense of identity. But also understanding that being different is not a bad thing. I think when you're young, all you want is to fit in, isn't it? All you want is to look like everyone else. For me, my biggest insecurity was my hair. I had this frizzy hair and I remember the, the little girls at school once, I remember they're so clearly, once being told we are playing a game and they went, you can't play because no one with frizzy hair is allowed to play. And and can I just butt in here and say, if anyone hasn't seen Vic <laughs> hair, Google her hair. It's amazing. I love it. I, I used to straighten it right up until last, no, 2017, August 2017 was the time that I finally stopped straightening my hair because my whole life I was so worried about it being different. Those little girls, they really changed something inside of me where I was so, I lacked confidence with it. I hated, I hated my hair so much. I remember asking my mum if I could straighten it I remember asking her when I was in the bath if she could rub the brown off because I wanted to look the same as everyone else and I wasn't allowed to play that game that one day and instead I ran off and played on my own. And protect- Can you remember was Power Rangers? They used to talk into their watch, oh, to the sword yeah. on. I remember just talking into my watch because no one else wanted to talk to me because of my hair and it really affected me oh. and as soon as I was allowed to, I straightened it and straightened it and straightened it to look the same as everyone else and to feel confident and now... I love having it like yeah. this. I can't be bothered to be just it every morning. And it makes you, <laughs> yeah. I would have
0: spoken to you on the Power Ranger, um, <laughs> yeah. but clearly that has been a big motivator for you and your work ethic
1: has yeah. just
0: driven you. Yeah. And I think just moving to you now, Sean, you are someone who, you know, you've worked so hard and you're a really successful property developer now, but I, I'm really interested in, you know, what was the house like that you grew up in?
1: So um, I grew up in a three-bedroom house, uh, the ex-council houses up in Wrexham, in North Wales. Uh, my parents uh, purchased it from the council when I was four years old. And um, yeah, I lived there with my younger sister, Carly. Uh, she's a year and a half younger than me and my older brother, Nick, who, uh, who also joined the army before I did. The house was fine, you know, my parents did, um, they tried to give us everything that we could when we were younger. You know, Christmas did spoilers, they'd give us everything we wanted at Christmas, but you, you, you knew that they didn't have much money for the rest of the year. So I remember growing up, I, I, I always said to myself, uh, you know, I can't wait for a job. I can't wait to make my own money because I always remember money being a problem for my parents.
0: And you, and as you said, your brother joined the Army, yeah. and is that something that you always wanted to do? Did you you know always say, "I'm going to join the military?"
1: Well, he's six years older than me, and I remember my parents uh, sent him to Army cadets because he was playing up, so he didn't actually want to go, but he, they sent him there to to, to learn some discipline. And uh, I remember uh, being disheartened because I was too young to join the cadets and yet my brother was being sent without him wanting to go. And I think that was the moment that I realised that I wanted to join the army. And uh, watching him uh, join you know, really built that up in me.
0: Now, in... In your story that you tell, which if anyone wants to listen to that, it's on a a um, mini-sode that's available with this podcast. Um, You talk about your brother getting injured. Mm. You know, I've got two sisters, and I can imagine if I'd heard that one of them had got injured, I don't know about, you've got three brothers. Oh, it it
2: would shatter me. Uh, Yeah, and I
0: I don't think I would have been able to then go and join the army, but you did.
1: Um, Yeah, it was something that I'd forgotten about for such a long time, and then... um, my mum said to me well, do you remember when Nick uh, was had his incident in uh, in Iraq because I was quite young at the time I didn't think it was that significant obviously to my brother and my mum it was but I remember uh, sitting down and reading a book that somebody had written about the same incident and um, it was quite a that hor- your brother got injured that, that he was okay. there it was quite a horrific incident a car bomb had gone off in a police station uh, killing a number of uh, royal military police out in Basra and um, it, he was on a quick reaction force so he was basically guarding the camp at the time and because he was the first one on the scene he you know he witnessed the carnage um the building that he was in the the windows actually imploded and that's uh, he suffered a lot of fragments from the glass his ears perforated and uh, i remember my mum telling me that he she, she had a phone call from one of his officers basically explaining what had happened and uh, nick's in a bit of shock but he's all right He's going to be all right, and, and she remembers speaking to him, and he wasn't making sense; he was just gibberish. Mm. And um, that's, you know, that's what I remember of my brother's tour in Iraq.
2: Did he continue serving after
1: that? He uh, he did four years. Um, he, funny enough, he actually was medically discharged. Um, he he had a car crash and he broke his arm in five places, and because he couldn't no longer do the job, he was right. medically discharged. Uh, but it's quite a strange thing. Um, my great granddad served with the Royal West Fusiliers in the First World War and he was actually uh, fragged by a mills bomb. He suffered um, bad knees for, it, um, for years afterwards. 1989 was the tri-centenary of the regiment. It had been around for 300 years, and my great grandad was the oldest uh, member of the regiment at that time, and because he was the oldest, he was introduced to the Queen. Now, um, after I was injured, um, the Queen also gave me my campaign medal uh, after I had spent three months in hospital, and there was a picture of me sat in a wheelchair um, with the Queen bending down, giving me my medal, and my granddad pulls out this picture of his dad 20 years before of the same picture. What a lovely uh, yeah, story. It was quite a strange, yeah. quite an eerie story, yeah.
0: So, if you hadn't joined the army, what would you have done?
1: Um, funny thing is, I, uh, I applied to be a bricklayer when okay. I was in school. You know, I didn't do well in school. Um, you know, I, I, I couldn't wait to get away from school, to be honest with you. And uh, it was. You left when you were 15? Yeah, yeah. So, like, um, you know, I was done with school and um i had an inkling that i wanted to join the army because of my brother and my granddad and and the rest of the family uh but ev- all my friends around me were going off and getting trades okay you know, like bricklayers yeah. carpenters electricians i thought well you know maybe I, maybe that's something i need to do and uh, i walked into the college and i sat down and you know they, they they asked me they said oh did you like school and i said no i bloody hated school <laughs> so it, i was honest i thought maybe if i'm honest they might give me a job And uh, they turned round and they said, uh, you know, we we think the building trade can function perfectly well without you. Okay. so Um, it was good
0: the army said It's quite strange. And and
1: now I'm actually in the building trade and I'm employing people to do the work for me. So it's all right. you showed
0: them. (laughs) And Vic, what about you? What if you hadn't taken the path that Uh, that you'd taken, what would you be doing? Academia? No, no, God,
2: no. I really, really wanted to join MI5, MI6. Ah. I mean, I'm not saying that was ever a viable option, but that was why I did, when I first decided to do languages, it was because I, I imagine myself doing pretty much what I'm doing now, but telling slightly more serious stories than like Justin Bieber and his new music. Um, but yeah, I thought I'd be in like Warzone's hard hat bulletproof vest okay. reporting from the front line. Um and then when I w- when I started uni, I kind of r- decided I really wanted to get that tap on the shoulder that you get at Oxford and Cambridge. Okay. And be like, so you're kind of like walking yeah, around, Showing like, the secret oh. service. But I'm such a flappy head, as in I cannot keep a secret. Ah. I'll be a terrible secret agent. And mm. um, so this is probably for the best that yeah. I just do a lot of gossip for a living. But well,
0: you've done okay. For yourself, <laughs>
2: so, um,
0: but I mean, you're both young. You're in your late twenties, and you've achieved. In your chosen past, you know, amazing things. It sounds as if, and I will ask you this, that you had some maybe quite big experiences that happened to you when you were at the age of 19. So, Vic, Mm. you went off to the other side of the world, to Argentina. Yeah. It's quite a long way from Newcastle. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But tell us about that and tell us what happened there.
2: If you do languages at any university in the UK, you have to take a third year. Uh, abroad to get fluent in your chosen language so mine was Spanish it's very rare in life someone's going to say here's a year do what you want as long as it's fairly productive and a lot of my friends were going to Spain and and you know going to uni or whatever And I was like no you know what this is not going to happen again I'm going to go to Argentina I've always wanted to go um, I want to be a journalist I'm trying to make this work so I managed to get myself an internship at a paper called the Argentina Independent Um I was the youngest journalist and in my within my first week, I was <laughs> I was covering um, erotic art in Buenos Aires. Okay, <laughs> I was my, my first assignment was to like cover the erotic scene. <laughs> my mum was like, "What are you doing out there, going to all these like they're called sex right. um and all it, like all this stuff?" But it was amazing. I covered the bloodiest year in Mexico's cartel war, which was insane at the time. A lot of Argentine politics, which because democracy was fairly young in that country it 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 was tumultuous you know like learning about what had happened really not that long before in Argentina was was crazy the dictatorships they'd, they'd been through and but I wasn't as conscious as I should have been of, or as politically engaged as I should have been. And this country really brought that out of me because politics was everything, because it affected every part of their lives on a daily basis. Right from the protests happening in Plaza de Mayo, you know, every week, the mothers who've lost their kids, whose kids have disappeared. They've been taken away and no one knows where they've gone. And it really affected me being out there. Um I worked hard, I wrote a lot of articles, I managed to get the internship turned into a job, so I was writing for this paper and I started working for MTV while I was there as well because I met some producers who were like, we need a presenter who speaks English. I was like, I speak great English, guys. Um, it was a, a bit of a weird year, it was it was really busy, I, I learnt a lot, I really made inroads in my career, but I, I feel like I hear this quite a lot, but it, as much as it was a great year for my career, it was actually probably the worst year of my life in terms of I haven't really talked about this. So, I, um, so my first boyfriend died that year because we had been together just before I went to uni. We broke up. We stayed friends, though. And then I found out while I was away that he had um, passed away. Then my granddad died. then my grandma died. And it all happened while I was away. So I think part of the reason that I worked so hard was that I was kind of blocking out the fact that a lot of stuff was happening that I, I had no control over. And I was like, well, I have control over this thing. I can work really, really hard and make something of myself because not everyone gets that opportunity. And not really thought about that. But, yeah, I think part of the reason that I worked that hard that year was because all that stuff was going on. Um, and then I came back and it was, it was, was sad. Was it kind of a wait? I mean, obviously, it was
0: clearly a horrible time. But yeah. was it a, a waking up moment? I you think know, so. You know, life is short. and Yeah.
2: And that's something that I... I, I honestly, I, if I'm honest with you, I don't think I thought about it at the time. You I, I remember okay. I, I I've never talked about about my my ex- boyfriend's death because I think I completely blocked that out. It was I, I didn't even grieve it really until I got back and his funeral was I, I came back. his funeral was like where I went back to Newcastle it was in the summer before I went back to uni and I remember taking a shift at the pub that we'd both worked at together that night. so I'd gone to the funeral, then they'd had the wake at the pub. And I was like, I'm going to take the shift. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to take the shift. I'm not even quiet. I'm cool. And I remember doing my shift and some of the locals were in and they were like bantering. And I remember all of a sudden thinking this banter is, is not good. I don't like the fact that they're bantering. It's really, this is really insensitive. I hate it. And I just went to the back and like burst into tears and had to go home. And then again, the next day I was like, no, it's fine. I don't know why I cried. And I didn't think about it again. I did, literally didn't think about that for probably another two years just completely blocked it out so and what was,
0: happened after two years that made you think about it again?
2: I I was in my final year of uni and I was really struggling just with the fact that I did I, well as I said before I didn't want to be there in my final year yeah. at all I really didn't want to be there I am um, didn't feel like doing all this academic stuff was for me I, I so much was changing I started seeing a counselor because I was like, I got to a point where I was really struggling with everything, and I was crying a lot. You know, you, you just you just don't know what's going on in your head. You're just
0: totally and overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed
2: by everything, and that was the first time I talked to someone. And we unpicked a few things, and this came out, and she was like, "Oh, you didn't mention that you had a boyfriend who had died, and you know, your boyfriend from when you were seventeen, and it, it, that's kind of a big deal." And I was like, "Oh, really? I guess." So. And I don't know why I'd never thought of it as a big deal, but I guess a part of it was that I just put it to the back of my mind and that was the first time I talked about it.
0: By talking about it, did you find that helpful?
2: Yeah, yeah. I think talking about stuff is always helpful and it's a thing that we're often disinclined to do. Is it a social thing or whether it's a Western thing, like we've got the stiff upper lip in this country, and but talking always makes things better and it's something that I've especially this year, which has been a very busy year um, for work. And again, it's been a great year for career, but I've started to feel quite overwhelmed. I've realised that talking to your friends and your family and and not blocking them out of your life and thinking that you can get through things on your own is the best way to have the best possible mental attitude towards things, psychologically be as healthy as possible. It sounds so cliche, but problem shared is a problem halved, and
0: it's so true, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, as you say, it's so easy to when someone else is going through a problem. Oh, why don't you talk about it? But when it's actually you, that's a really massive.
2: Thing. I hate yeah, I I hate being the one to come to my friends and say, "Is it alright if we just chat through this thing?" I, I'm very very unlikely to do that. I'm happy to hear what they have to say, and I I would love to be there for my friends, and if they've got problems. I don't know about you but I find it really hard to bring my problems to other people. I feel like I'm burdening them. Mm.
1: Yeah, especially being a man, you know, yeah, it's yeah. it's not something that men do very often, you know. It's you, you you meet up with your friends, you take the piss and you you crack on, like, you know at the TV program that I took part in called Without Limits this year. We spoke about what we went through very very deeply and um, you know that it was it was actually really hard for the men to actually talk to each other about it because that's something that you don't do and uh, and like learning to tell my story actually really helped me deal with what I went through yeah um, uh, you know actually being able to stand up and talk about what you've been through means that you 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 kind of on the other side of it and it doesn't bother you so much anymore
2: when you were serving would you and the other guys talk through your problems ever
1: um not really, no, well, it's kind feeling? of uh, while you're serving it's it's something that's not acknowledged very often. Mm-hmm. um a lot of guys uh, later on down the line, once they've had time to think about it and overcome what they've been through uh, what, usually when they've left the military you know years down the line, a lot of people don't actually realize they're they're suffering with something because yeah. they they've been they've been experiencing these sort of feelings for so long that it's so normal to them yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. yeah that's true. If it becomes like normalized, how yeah. can you even recognise it yeah.
0: you just think that's how you should feel yeah.
1: yeah,
0: I mean look at you know you didn't talk about your boyfriend dying for two years and, yeah. um, I know some of the veterans that we've worked with in the past they haven't told what about their injury and what happened to them for sort of 20 or 30 years and and when they do I know it's incredibly hard for them to do that but when they do it's just they find it incredibly therapeutic and that's what's so amazing Sean when you tell your story you're so honest and about your emotions and your feelings and the fact that you cried and you got in a dark place and I think that's for anyone listening that's it's so great to hear, not that you obviously were in a dark place, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, sure. that you're just being honest, because we all have, sh- mm. you know, shit days, don't we? Yeah, yeah. um But, you know, take us back to when you were 19, mm. and it was, I think I've got the date right, the 11th of April, yes, uh, yeah. and where are you?
1: So it's the 11th of April, 2010, and I'm in a place called Babaji, and I'm six days before the end of my tour. And... We were tasked to go on a on a routine foot patrol that day to, to do a resupply for a local um for another regiment that was in the in the area. We were we didn't know if we were actually going to go out that day. There was a sandstorm. We were on patrol minimise and we're not meant to go out when there's a sandstorm, so we were just waiting for it to clear to get the go ahead to go out on this patrol. And we all thought it was going to get cancelled. And then it must have been about two o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, where we where we were told to get our gear on and get our weapons, uh, we're going out. And I'm the lead man in in the in the section as I usually was with the Valon And it must have been about a hundred meters away from where we were based at the time. And I could see what was you know it's a normal sight out in Afghanistan. There was a poppy stack on the side of the road. Now these poppies are you know the big six-foot-tall poppies that the Taliban use for the opium trade. And last year's harvest, they just leave them piled up on the side of the road like you would see in a a field full of cows, you know, with a hay bale. And we'd found uh, 20 uh, improvised explosive devices hidden inside these poppy stacks on the side of these fields. And um, it was part of my job because I had the val and the metal detector to go and check these out. And I could see... uh, uh, rocket-propelled grenade tail, the, the 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 back end of a rocket poking out of the side of one of these poppy stacks, and I knew that there was ammunition or something that was hidden inside it. So I tell um, you know my section to take a knee, and I'm going out to check this area out.
0: And so you'd gone and checked it out, but what happened to you next?
1: Well, I'd, I I realised it was just the tail of the RPG okay and uh, as i bagged it up for forensics they check it for fingerprints for any uh, known taliban in the area as i gave it to my section commander who was about five meters away from me at the time i told him i was going back in because i hadn't searched the area properly as i turned around and searched it i uh, stepped on an ied uh, on my left leg and
0: so an uh, improvised explosive device yeah
1: so um the the It was basically like a homemade bomb that the Taliban make out of plastic bottles, explosives, uh, carbon, rods out of batteries and wires and and, um, they plant them in doorways and in weak spots in in between walls and and, um, it was a pressure plate so when you stand on it, it completes an electrical circuit and when the electrical circuit meets the explosives it it detonates and, and that's when I lost my legs straight away, they were blown off completely.
0: Oh. And then, and what happened to your sight?
1: So, um, at the time, I thought that there was just dirt in my eyes. Okay, so ho- you couldn't see? No, or, Okay. No. It was, it was strange. I couldn't actually see that I'd lost my legs. Uh, I was, you, you couldn't feel it either? Um, I, th- I think th- because of the shock that I went through, yeah. I think you, the brain's such a marvellous thing that it, it shut off the pain below my hips. Right. And, um, you so know... So what's
0: going through your mind?
1: So I'm just hoping that... It's just dirt in my eyes. Okay. I'm hoping that it's, it's a mortar that's gone off next to me or, or a, an IED, a bomb that's detonated close to me. Uh, you, you know, you, you do hope that once the, everything has calmed down and all the dust has settled that, you know, you, you're going to be all right. You've got a bit of a flesh wound, especially when you don't feel the pain of your legs being ripped off. It's quite a strange thing. I imagine if you experienced that sort of pain on the, on you know at, at the level it was I don't I don't think you'd be able to survive it and that's a, it's an amazing survival mechanism of the brain to just shut it off now I dislocated my left shoulder at the time and that that was excruciating you know it took a couple of years for me to rehab it and fix it up you know yeah it was really really painful that was
0: so after you were injured you were transported back to Birmingham to Selly Oak Hospital and put into a medically induced coma how long were you in that for, and what was it like when you came out of that?
1: Well, it's it's quite strange. Again, I remember Vic saying about her, her mum, she she had a, a vague image of what went on in the war when she was younger. And I imagine for my family at the time, it was just, they, they, they didn't know the, the wrist from their elbow. And, you know, that there I was, 19, in the hospital, they didn't know if I was going to live or die. So... I don't know how long I was actually in that coma for. My mum says it was weeks, months, you know, it's like it, it, everybody says something different because they were all suffering through shock of what had happened and everybody's experiences were different. Um, I just remember it was strange. I didn't know that I had left Afghanistan. One minute, um, I'm there, I'm doing my job. You know, the next um, I'm in a hospital in Birmingham. Like I, I hadn't even come to terms with what happened to me on the day. I didn't know I'd really lost my legs. I didn't know what had happened. It's just like within a blink of an eye, you your whole world's changed, and you wake up in a hospital with a bandage around your head and both your eyes. You know, and and your legs missing, and and telling you that you you know you'd lost everything is at 19, is uh, is quite a tough place to be.
0: That's been really scary.
1: Yeah, it was. It was. You know, I I couldn't see a thing. Um, my left hand—I um, think—I had ten operations on my left hand and shoulder to try and get it fixed and working. So I had one arm that worked. Um, they gave me a one-handed wheelchair that I couldn't push myself for a couple of years because I couldn't see enough to even push my wheelchair. The strange thing was, I didn't even—I don't even know what a cellular Hospital looked like. When and how I, long were you in there for? I was there for three months. And you've and got no recollection. No, no. I just remember. Voices, names. I think we drove past uh, a couple of years ago, and I, I yeah, you know, I can see a bit now, and mm-hmm. I, I didn't recognize anything. You know, it's it's quite strange. you scared. Yeah, yeah, very scared. Yeah. Being nineteen, you know, at the army, I was a, I was a professional soldier, a real great future in the army, you know. Um, and it was your dream. Yeah, yeah. You know, you at that age, being a teenager, you know. Women uh, is quite a high uh, priority on a on a young nineteen year old, and uh, you're realizing that you've lost your legs, and now you're in a wheelchair. You're you're, you're blind. You're disabled. You've lost your independence, and your parents have got to do everything for you. It's it's a horrible place to be. Mm. Yeah.
0: So, how do you move forward from that?
1: Um, I suppose it's time and t- taking it one step at a time. Like in them days, um, it was a triumph that I'd managed to brush my own teeth. That I'd dressed myself that I'd been to the toilet on my own, and it was like that for for months. I couldn't see a computer screen or a phone for at least two years. I couldn't even walk out of the house you know I, I, I didn't have a car um you know I couldn't use the internet, social media didn't know who I was talking to half of the time it was it was tough it was extremely tough, but I suppose you you put a brave face on it. I think I was embarrassed about my eyesight injury at first because of what it took away from me. I took my independence. And, you know, I, I was very independent from a young age. I joined the army at 16. You know, I did everything for myself. And now I'd lost it all, and I felt like a baby. I felt like a child. And now I was living in a bed in the downstairs living room. I, I couldn't even go to the toilet on my own. It was tough.
2: Your mum, how is she?
1: You know, they they actually suffered a lot. Yeah. You know, because yeah. I, I knew I could kind of do something about it it was up to me if I if I was going to try and turn this around you know I'm, they're helpless they can't really yeah. do anything they're just trying to make it better you know they didn't they didn't know what the future was going to hold 19 year old son blind and lost his legs and now like yeah I, I was I was practically like a child again yeah
0: was there a moment because? When we've spoken to other people and we've called it the light bulb moment where people have said that there is this literal moment where they just get real clarity on how they're going to move forward with their life. Was there, firstly to you, Sean, was there this light bulb moment or is that kind of a a (laughs) dream? I I
1: think that's a bit of a dream. I think it's many hundreds, if not thousands of light bulb moments. Because once you've had a light bulb moment, it only takes, you know, a, a, a setback to be back in the same place. And especially in them early days, an operation or, you know, something not working was very easy to put me back into a dark place. Um, but I suppose as time went on, uh, and you pull yourself up out of it many, many times. You, you become more resilient, you know, you know what you went, how you went wrong the last time and you pick it up and go again. And, and I, I imagine the rest of my life is going to be like that. So that's one thing I have learned is that it's not going to be plain tailing. Everybody goes through you know, tra- some sort of traumatic experience in their lives. It's just you know how, how it defines us, what we can learn about it and how we can better ourselves from it.
2: Everyone is always going through something. I think that's something that you learn throughout life every day. And the more we talk about stuff, the more we realize that, that we're all in it together and we can support one another. And I think that's often the series of light bulb moments is actually not from within you, but from the people that you meet along the way, the people that help you, the people you talk to, the people whose problems you you hear. And every time you hear from another person, I guess you realize that you can work through it because they can, you're inspired by people. You hopefully inspire other people. Mm. You you definitely do, Sean. And as you go through life doing that and learning that, they're like mini, mini moments. Mini light bulbs. Yeah, yeah, mini little fairy lights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah LEDs. LED. We'll rebrand okay. yeah. we it. we it. But
0: you said that you found counselling really
2: useful. I did, yeah.
0: What instigated that? Why did you feel like, oh, I need to go and talk to someone?
2: Because I'd been stewing for so long okay. on my own. If, if there's going to be a light bulb moment, it would probably have come over the, the last year that just went and I started talking to someone more and more frequently. And making making it a priority as opposed to a thing that just did if I could because y- you need that you need to look after your mental health and I think for a long time I'd thought that it was a secondary um, priority and and I just worked and worked and worked and um, I had a, a big breakup last year followed by a house move I went from moving with uh, living with my friends to living alone and a lot of work stuff and it's y- when you have various changes in your life. You either deal with them or you sweep it under the carpet. I just kept sweeping things under the carpet and just like getting on with it. And then I realised I was quite, quite alone actually, like living on my own and not having a boyfriend anymore, which is great. And you should be able to be independent, but equally you should be able to talk to someone. I've been working for a little bit and coming up against quite a lot of obstacles in uh, this industry, radio and TV. As much as I work really, really hard, it's still a difficult industry especially for women especially if you're not from London you don't have financial input from parents or there's lots of ways that you can be locked out of this industry and you can feel that you're not welcome and there have been lots of incidents that I'd come across of sexism in the workplace and stuff just being a bit shit and me feeling like it wasn't fair and I was like no matter how hard I work I can never be as good as that guy because there's not really a place for me and I I realised last year that instead of dwelling on that, um, that I could make it better for the next generation of girls. So I started doing a lot more work with Amnesty. Uh, I wrote an article for Marie Claire about sort of raising points that maybe had been not spoken as much before. Um, i working on campaigns to help women break boundaries in their workplaces um, and getting more women talking about issues so they realise that that if we're a critical mass of women speaking out about stuff that's going on that's not acceptable, that our companies are going to have to change, they're going to have to make some changes. Um, and all of a sudden I went from like being really down about the fact that this is a difficult industry to really excited about how we can change the industry. Um, and I just think that rather than your own career path, as soon as you start making it about the next generation's career path, it becomes, it becomes a much more enriching endeavour and you're still doing well you're doing what you need to do you're telling the stories you want to tell but you're making it so that more people can tell more stories and that's the point of broadcasting is that we have diversity of voices so paving the way for there to be more diverse voices has become a bit of a mission now
0: absolutely what an amazing legacy to be leaving as well uh, and doing good and sean you um as we mentioned in um, the biography, you were recognised in the New Year's Honours list for your work with charities, and um, I don't think there's many people I know who've had a prison wing <laughs> named after yeah. them. Tell us about the work that you do there.
1: So uh, the HMP Berwyn is a, is a new state-of-the-art prison that's just been built in Wrexham, so it's the first prison that's been built in the last 30 years, and it's the biggest uh, prison in, in the whole of Europe. Uh, I'm from Wrexham, so I'm from the local town where it's built, and I was sitting on a train actually, funny enough, coming down to London to give a talk for uh, the drive project, when I sat next to uh, one of the governors of the prison. Now, I walk around in shorts, so it's pretty easy to see that you know I've lost my legs, and uh, she has two sons in uh, in the army band, so Usually when people have uh, family members in in the military, they come and say hello and talk about their family members. And and, uh, I asked her, what does she do? And she said, I'm a governor in the local prison, in the new prison. And at this point, it it, it was half built. So none of the wings had names. You know, there was no men in the prison system. And uh, I basically said to her, I've been wanting to get in touch to offer my services, to come in and uh, speak to the men and help them with their rehabilitation and she said that they, they were opening a wing specifically for veterans. And it's a new one of its kind, and they're hoping that it's gonna help them rehabilitate uh, rather than being spread around the whole prison system. And uh, I went in, I, I, I started volunteering and giving talks, and then uh, they asked, how would you feel if we decided to call it the Sean Stocker community? Now at the time, I was thinking, you know, do, do, I, do I want a prison wing named after me at the time? And uh, I, I said to myself, well, if I'm going to really make a difference here, it's, you know, the legacy that I leave is, is down to the work that I put in. So I, I decided to go along with it. They, every time I go in there, the respect that I get from these men, uh, you know, it's, it, you, you do feel like you're doing a really good job there. I thought to myself, well, I want to help veterans. I want to use my story to, uh, to raise awareness and help veterans. And I thought, who are the veterans that need the most help? It's obviously veterans in the prison system. So by going in and helping them rehabilitate and stop re-offending, uh, you know, I would go in and I would sh- get involved with some of the positive work and, and tell them my story of how I managed to turn my life around. You know? I say their traumatic experience you know, is, is, is the crime that they've done and now they've had their lives and their families taken away from them. Why not use this time in prison? because they've got a lot of time on their hands to 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 you know to try and make your life better afterwards which is and and that way they can look back at this time and say you know maybe maybe it was a good thing that I went to prison
0: and you're sort of passing on how you dealt with your traumatic experience yeah. to them and yeah. turning it into something positive yeah. now you've both spoken about storytelling and the power of storytelling why do you think it's so important to tell your story and and more widely have a conversation
2: For a number of reasons. I mean, you just never know who's going to hear it and who it might help. I think knowing that you're not alone is incredibly important. Knowing that, not that you're normal, because normal's not the right word, but that what you're going through doesn't make you crazy or a freak or the fact that you're struggling. When you tell a story, you, you reach out. You also communicate, um, I guess, ways that you've dealt with things that could be helpful to other people. You express yourself, which is important and is often stifled uh, in our society. And I think the more people who tell their stories, the more we will respect one another and realise that we are gloriously different from each other, but also exactly the same at the same time. And that's a brilliant thing. And that's so many problems in our world because... We're scared of the fact that we're different, but in being different, we're so similar. And if we can accept that, I think it's a really powerful step forward. We should be encouraging as many people to tell as many stories as possible. And Sean, how about you?
1: I think um, being able to stand up and tell a story is one of the biggest gifts that I've ever been given. Um, for me, standing up and telling my story for 20 minutes, minutes—you um, know, it really changes lives. If it helped one person in the audience going through a really tough time, then then my twenty minutes is I'd give a whole day for that, you know. Oh, and brilliant. it's helped me deal with what I've been through as well. Um, to to be able to stand up and take people to your lowest points, it really shows that you 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 know you're over that period.
0: And I just love the fact that both of you have spoken about. the legacy that you both are going to be leaving I believe you are and you're using your platforms raising awareness of women's rights and Sean you know you with veteran prisoners and what I think is so exciting that the work that you're doing is almost like that pebble that hits the water and what is the ripple effects.
2: What I said earlier about being at school and being told by the other girls I wasn't allowed to play because I looked different from them if that little girl had heard a story from someone who looked like me, who was like me, who had parents from different cultures or had frizzy hair like me. Just one story could have made that situation not have happened and the pain that it caused not have happened. And hopefully that situation isn't happening now because I'm telling my story Absolutely. now and, and I hope that the little girls are listening.
0: So in the <laughs> same way, that what would you say to your younger self?
1: What would I say? Just keep, keep pushing forwards, just keep fighting, keep going, um, time will heal, keep going, that's what I'd say.
0: Thank you. Now how have you found the conversation today in sharing sort of really honestly about your experiences?
1: I've, I've, you know it's, it's really uh, interesting to hear what you've been through, it's a totally different scenario but yet there's so many things in there that are exactly the same as what everybody goes through. Yeah,
2: I think because your story is so powerful and it, it feels like a thousand miles away from anything that most people can relate to, to be honest, but actually there's so much that you've mentioned that I think we can all relate to when it comes to the importance of sharing and talking and our mental health. It's been really illuminating, so thank you. I really appreciate it. It's been really, really... Great experience.
0: Well, from my point of view, and it has been absolutely lovely to um, listen to you both. And thank you so much to both of you for being so honest as well, and for sharing. Thanks, Thanks
1: for having much. us. Yeah,
2: thank you. It's been great to meet you. Yeah, show. you too. Thanks thank you. Much. I don't know should we shake. Do we shake hands? Shake hands. Yeah, like a high five. Yeah, oh. high
0: <laughs> if you've been affected by any of the issues discussed here in the podcast then please have a look at our webpage or show notes where you'll be able to find more information. Thank you for downloading this episode. And why not subscribe and share it with your friends and family? You never know who it might help. The Resilient Sessions has been inspired by Making Generation R, a campaign which aims to create a generation of resilient people across the UK. The series is brought to you by Blesma, the Limbless Veterans Charity, and is based on an original idea by Cy Harmer and The Drive Project. The Resilient Sessions are supported by OpenReach, produced by The Drive Project, and with thanks to Facebook.